Now, I, I want to talk to you just a little bit while you're passing that over about how to approach patients, you know, how to own a room. When you walk into a room, you have to be able to own that room. You know, whenever, whenever a patient is there, and especially if it's a new patient, they're there, they're nervous, they don't know you, they have no idea whether you're competent or incompetent for that matter. Uh, they don't know if you're gonna be nice to them, if you're gonna hurt them or whatever. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. So what you do at the very beginning makes a huge difference as to how the entire course of your relationship with that patient for years to come will we'll go. So uh, the first thing that, that uh, Travis and I were talking about is walk into a room with confidence. You don't walk into a room the way that I did up here. You know, your head's down. You know, you kind of got a defensive posture here. You don't make eye contact. The first thing you do when you walk into the room is you look them in the eye. Second thing you do is you smile at them. You have to smile at them. If you don't smile at them, then they don't know if you're glad to see them or if you're a bother or if you're having a bad day or anything like that. Smile as if they are your best friend and you're just now seeing them. Um, and the other thing is, is introduce yourself. Uh, I, I always, you know, if, if I haven't met the patient before, I say, hi, I'm Dr. Larry Bishop. I'm really glad to meet you. Um, that's, that's one of those things that just kind of breaks down barriers because what you have is you have about 30 seconds to win them over one way or the other. And either you win them or you lose them. And so my advice is smile at them. And then the last thing is, and so many of us are guilty of not doing this, you have to touch them. I always shake their hand, you know, and I shake it warmly, you know, but, but you, know, you know, you have a wide range of people, some who want to break your hand and other people that, that, that shake it like a dead fish, you know, it's so, so nice to meet you. Uh, but, but I start out gentle and if they start to crush me, then I crush them back. Um, but look them in the eye, okay. Um, and then uh, just uh, some more informal things about how to control the interaction. Uh, can you pass those questionnaires from the end back to the back, please? Uh, uh, it looks like somebody's collecting them. Thank you very much. Um, uh, control the interaction. And, and what, I, what I like to do is I like to think of it as sort of like a Jay Leno uh, sort of thing where everything is highly scripted. And so when I walk into the room, you know, after I do the grip and grin and all that sort of thing, the first thing I do is I look them in the eye because if you look people in the eye, then, then that is a little bit of a dominance move on your part. But it's something that allows you to control them rather than them to control you. And what you do is you say, do you have anything that you're worried about today? And almost invariably I say, well, I'm not worried, you know, but my wife said uh, you need to take a look at this or, or you need to look at this or you need to do this or you need to do that. Uh, would you please look at this? And what you do is you have them enumerate and run down the list of all the things that they're worried about at the beginning because I can assure you they're not leaving until they, until they get those things answered. But if you in turn are controlling the way that they do it, you'll go through and say, oh, that's a maturity spot. Oh, don't worry about that. You know, that's another maturity spot. Oh, that's a maturity spot. You know, and that's what I do all day is I just say, well, that's a maturity spot, that's a maturity spot. Um, but, but what you want to do is you want to be able to answer all those things because otherwise they'll catch you at the doorknob and then they will torture you. You don't want that. And so what you do is you get them to answer those at the beginning. Because then also, and, and you treat them, if it's an AK, freeze it 
right there on the spot. Because otherwise, you know, if they come back and they say, oh, this little microscopic thing that I pointed out to you, you didn't freeze, then, then you're tripped up getting out the door. So you, you go ahead and you're modulating the, the thing. And if it looks like it's going to be a long, long, long story, then you start examining their back or their scalp or whatever uh, to try to get the ball rolling. And you're freezing as you go along while they're telling you the long story about Aunt Minnie, who also has something that looked just like that. And she's talking about a seborrheic keratosis. Uh, so um, you go ahead and you go through and you're moving, moving, moving the whole time. And then my suggestion to you is after you've gone through the head to toe routine, that what you do is that you lay them down always for a biopsy. Now, some people say, oh, you know, I like to do it because, you know, that way they're more comfortable. Make them lay down. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is, is that you control them if they're lying down. You know, you have them rotate this way, rotate this way, do this, do that. Uh, but as much as possible, you get them to lie down for that biopsy. And then you do the biopsies. And it, I assume that most of you have at least a clinical assistant in the room. I certainly hope you do if you don't. Um, and so you do the biopsy. You hand off the biopsy. And then you say, you put your hand on them. This is the moment that you're getting ready to leave. You put your hand on them and say, my assistant here, Jane or Nancy or whoever, uh, is going to take a picture of the spot that we just biopsied. And so if you'll wait right here, she'll be right back. What that does is that gives you your moment to leave. Because otherwise, it's social time. They're going to take two minutes, or a minute, or three minutes. But that's time away from your schedule, and it puts you further and further and further behind in the queue uh, as the course of the day goes on. So you want a clear moment when you can end that patient interaction. Now, uh, that being said, a lot of times, whenever I'm finished with the, with the uh, exam, if I think there's still a little bit of uncertainty, I look them in the eye. Once again, you have to look them in the eye to do this. Say, is there anything else that worries you that I didn't address? Because what that does is that gives them a moment to calm down, kind of run their list. Nope, that's it. And so that's an admission by them that they don't have anything else that they're going to catch you with on the way out. But what you want is you want to be able to stay on time as much as you can, because you owe that to the other people, to the other patients. Uh, but at the same time, you want to be able to be as efficient and as complete as possible. Does that make sense? Yeah, OK. Um, I have uh, won, uh, you know, gotten these awards for the last 12 years uh, at least, and I'm thinking maybe 15, uh, for being in the top 5% of dermatologists in the nation, not because of the things that you think about, but because my patients like me. They really believe in me. They believe in me and my investment in them. And I think that the same thing, that same approach, has really led them to, uh, you know, whenever the other doctors, you know, the primary carers and all that, vote for who they would send their family to, it's always Bishop. But the reason why it's Bishop is because of that, because I have this very defined approach to it. I always look them in the eye, I always smile at them, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but the thing of it is, is, is that that approach is something that will win people over again and again, and you need to be a brand. Kristen is a brand. She's New York Yankees of Derm Challenge. But she's also somebody who's very good at what she does. And so, uh, Emily, the same thing. You need to be a brand where people would rather see you than me. 
you can do this. This is something that is not only possible, but likely. So uh, that's my spiel. Uh, kind of roll it around in your head and apply it to your practice. But this is your practice, this is your life, and you want people to love you so that they will, in turn, want to see you over and over again because that makes your life better and you'll want to do this until you retire. Okay, so let's go through this. We're gonna go through these relatively quickly, but I'm gonna take my time and, um, and I will answer any questions if I can hear them. If I can't hear them, if you mumble you know, or something like that, I'm just gonna keep going. Um, but uh, these are questions that are, 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 are picked to help you tease out what you would do in a patient in a clinical setting. So this first one is, is a carry-on. Um, uh, carry-on is something that is caused by a multiplicity of organisms, but they're all fungal. And the one that's most common is uh, microsporum canis. Uh, microsporum canis is something that, uh, you know, you can get it from dogs or cats or right, your pet raccoon or whatever. Uh, but um, the, the hallmark of uh, microsporum canis uh, infection is, is that it starts out like a little bit of a wildfire. It starts out from the center, it's intensely inflammatory because the body recognizes it as an antigen, so what it'll do is it'll go ahead and start fighting back. And it's actually the inflammatory response that causes this boggy, erythematous, indurated plaque on the scalp. And uh, the only real true differential diagnosis for this would be dissecting cellulitis of the scalp. Now, dissecting cellulitis uh, is something that's similar in some ways. It can have pus associated with it, but the dissecting cellulitis tends to be lower. The, uh, can you kind of picture this as a superficial infection that has, an, as, has a deep inflammatory component? If you can, well, that's, that's what it is. Whereas dissecting cellulitis is something that dives deep, and what will happen is that you'll have a more normal overlying skin with pockets of pus coming up out of it. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So uh, the other name for that is carrion celsii. And um, the other, uh, other than microsporum canis, you know, you can also get T. mentag and T. Uh, and tonsurans as well with that. Everybody got that, right? Yeah. Please say yes. Um, uh, this is the, uh, what, what the British call the napkin dermatitis. And uh, well, the things that really help you pick this out is, is of course, the kind of glazed look of it. Uh, the second thing is the distribution of it. You can see how it stays kind of low in that genital, perigenital region. And of course, what, what is the hallmark of candidiasis clinically? Satellite lesions, yeah, yeah. You can see them. Uh, satellite lesions, satellite lesions, satellite. satellite lesions. So, um, you know, interestingly, these things are not as positive uh, KOH-wise as you would think, because a lot of times the candida, since candida is kind of a finicky organism, it is down in the pustule or it's down underneath that scale that tends to be over the surface of them. Um, so if you're going to do a KOH, be very, very, very gentle. And that's hard to do in a wiggling little kid, but, um, but candidiasis is usually made clinically as a diagnosis, and uh, you can treat it with myconazole or whatever you like. 
cutaneous larval migrans, also known as creeping eruption. You'll get credit for either answer. Um, and it's caused by Ancelostoma brasiliens almost always. And uh, Ancelostoma is, is carried by uh, feral cats primarily. That's, that's what we almost always see it in. And uh, you can also see it in dogs. You can see it in raccoons and other wild critters that are running around. Uh, but, uh, but the way that we get this usually is by being Jethro Bodine and walking around in our bare feet and you say, ho, oh, 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 walking along and getting this. Or being out on the beach, the worst case of creeping eruption I ever saw was in a fellow who was doing house inspections, had to crawl underneath a trailer, and underneath the trailer was a uh, den of feral cats, all of who had excreted Ancelostoma brasiliens. And so it was all over his back, all over his buttocks, all over his legs. And um, one of the interesting things about this is, is that you can see a very, very, very dramatic and, and not in a small case like this, but in, in big cases, you can see a, an eosinophilia of up to 50%. It's pretty impressive. And uh, you can also get pulmonary infiltration. We call that Leffler syndrome. What is the primary animal reservoir for Borrelia burgdorferi? Yell it out. The deer tick, but what's the animal that's the reservoir? Somebody said mouse, somebody said something else. What's the answer? The white-footed mouse. It's a deer tick, Ixodes scapularis in the east, Ixodes pacificus in the west, but it is the white-footed mouse that is the primary animal reservoir. And how many of these people remember that they got bit by a tick? Most of them? 90%, 80%? Less than 10% actually remember being bitten by a tick because they were bitten by the tick in the nymph phase when it's so small that you can barely even see it and the nymph will usually bite you and then drop off. So, long story short, is Borrelia burgdorferi. The, way, the clue for this was is that this looked like another one of those expanding brush fires. Uh, you can see in the, that it started out central and then it, it spread uh, centripetally out from there, and that it has a little bit of a leading inflammatory margin there, followed by less inflammation behind it, as if it's just spreading out just like that wildfire. Uh, the, um, the, the name of the, um, uh, the original presentation is called Erythema chronicum or Erythema chronicum migrans or Erythema migrans. You know, this thing about polysyllabic Latin names, everybody wants to cut some of that out. Um, and uh, the Borrelia burgdorferi is, is something that can have both early and late sequelae. These are the early sequelae. Uh, and the late sequelae, of course, is something called Acrodermatitis chronica atrophicans, which looks a lot like uh, a sclerodermatous type process. Um, but most of the time, this is what we see, and then you can, uh, uh, what'll happen is this will disappear, and then you'll get the neurologic disease, the arthritis, and all that sort of thing. Uh, but the main thing to do is to diagnose this early, and if you have any suspicion about this at all, you know, either by history or just by your own clinical suspicion, then go ahead and do the serology on this. Um, 
I diagnosed the first uh, case that was native to the state of Florida when I was up in the Air Force, up at Eglin Air Force Base, and um, it was a patient who had no history of anything other than playing out in the yard with his kids. So, so if you have a clinical suspicion, go ahead and make that, uh, make that call and go ahead and, um, and do the serology on them. This is candidiasis, budding yeast. And uh, since we're asking for the most likely, are there other things that are budding yeast? Yes. But are there other things that are commonly uh, budding yeast that show up in a KOH? No. Uh, the spore trichoid pattern is something that is associated with lots of things other than spore trichosis. Uh, but the main thing that you look for is that marching set of pustules or erythematous nodules that are marching up the arm as it follows up the lymphatics. Uh, Sporotrichosis is associated with it, as are many of the other um, uh, fungals, uh, fungal diseases, uh, but you can also see it in atypical mycobacteria, most specifically uh, Mycobacterium marinum, uh, and you can see it in tuberculosis, syphilis, and leishmaniasis, nocardia, tularemia, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, uh, long story short is you have to recognize it in order to diagnose it, and sporotrichoid pattern is there. I will give you credit for anything that has ever been reported as a sporotrichoid spread, in case you're wondering. It doesn't have to just be the ones that I named. Um, I'm going to spot everybody this one. You know, it, the lights are up too much, and this is too hard to see, but this is a positive KOH, and you can see it tracing right down through there. Um, but, but once again, this is very, very hard. Um, uh, what it looks like is a railroad at 20,000 feet. And if it doesn't have parallel lines, if it doesn't have those little septate hyphae, then it's probably not a positive KOH. Um, a lot of times, uh, cells, whenever they abut one another, will give you a pseudo-positive. Uh, black dot tinea capitis, trichophyton tonsurans. Uh, this is, I love this because this is the best example of anything I've ever seen. How do you do a culture on, on uh, black dot tinea capitis? Pluck the hair. Because it's an endothrix. The, the, the fungus doesn't live out on the skin, it lives down inside the hair shaft. And so the only way for you to get a positive culture many times is to go ahead and pluck those little black dots which look like uh, they're comedones, but they're not. They are little hairs. And how can you tell this from a scarring alopecia? Anybody? Because there are hair there. You know, there's hair in this. And if it were a scarring alopecia, there would not be hair there. This is Crow's sign, uh, neurofibromatosis 1. Um, as you all know, this is autosomal dominant. And the axillary freckling is something that's present in 95% of the cases, usually by age 2. Um, there are, uh, there are other, other stigmata associated with neurofibromatosis, but if you have a patient who has neurofibromas on them, you want to look for those other stigmata, and the other stigmata are such things as the, the dark dots in the irises, those are called Lish nodules, right, uh, the crow sign, which is something that I always do, I just, I just if anybody has neurofibroma, say, lift your arm. And uh, that's, that's something that's very helpful. Caffeolae macules are another one, uh, greater than 1.5 centimeters, less than 5 centimeters, and uh, greater than or equal to 6. 
And so you look at those things, and, um, and what that'll allow you to do is that'll allow you to go ahead and rule in very quickly whether or not they're likely to have neurofibromatosis or just isolated neurofibromas, which are a dime a dozen. And what's the classic sign whenever you poke in on a neurofibroma? Buttonholing, yes. Lady here in the front, got that one. Nice job. Um, Nevis sebaceous, I had one. Uh, they are loaded with benign adnexal tumors. You know, uh, you can have any adnexal structure, whether it be a sweat duct or whether it be a hair shaft or whether it be um, an oil gland, uh, has a, a tumor associated with it as well as a carcinoma associated with it. Some of them are vanishingly rare, some of them aren't. But nevus sebaceous, nevus sebacei, are, are associated with benign adnexal tumors uh, that arise from there, as well as basal cell carcinoma, as well as carcinomas such as microcystic adnexal carcinoma, which is a sweat duct tumor, and other things like that. Best thing to do is whenever they get that hormonal stimulation, usually at about, you know, peripuberty time frame, go ahead and have them uh, removed. And depending on the patient, you know, if it's small and it can be done under local, just do it locally. But, but a lot of times you end up having to have them uh, anesthetized for that. This is lichen striatus. Now, the normal story on this is, is that the patient is usually three, four, five, usually female, and uh, it'll come up for no apparent reason, and it'll go away for no apparent reason, usually within a few months. But the reason why I put on there that it had been present for three years is they can linger for a long, long time. And what they come up as are as little papules that coalesce into a, a little line, and it can be on the extremities. And by, by far the most common presentation is, is that it'll be either a hyperpigmented group of papules or a hypopigmented group of papules uh, on the extremities, but it can also be on the trunk. It can even be on the face in less than 10% of the cases. And... Um, that is, uh, let's see, yeah, two to one uh, female to male distribution. And they resolve on their own. Raise your hands if you got this. You are awesome. You're absolutely awesome. This is tough. Uh, because a lot of you thought that this doddering old fool put the same slide up again, didn't he? Uh, now, uh, Langerhans cell histiocytosis is something that is uh, very, very, very dependent upon you thinking about it. Uh, so anytime you see anybody with a diaper distribution uh, rash, this is one of the things you think about. Now, this is not a classic case, except for the fact that you've got papules that are well away from the diaper line. And that's the, that's the real trick to this one. Uh, if it were down lower, you would say, well, it could be candidiasis, and it could be. Uh, but the thing of it is, is it's a little bit more brawny, a little bit more red, and most of them, uh, if you kind of look at them closely, will almost have a purpuric look to them. And that's the difference between candidiasis, which is more a pustular or kind of erythematous little papule, and Langerhans cell histiocytosis, which is more almost purpuric because that's a little bit deeper and it causes a little bit more inflammation, but primarily it causes a little bit of rupture of those blood vessels with all those Langerhans cells. Um, one other thing to think about is if you see a, a child who has uh, sebderm, 
and it doesn't look like regular sebderm. It's maybe not a scaly sebderm, uh, but it's in the same kind of sebderm distribution. Think Langerhans cell histiocytosis. It, it, it's, a, it's an important diagnosis to make. And if it's just located on the skin, we treat it with steroids. How many people got this one? Yeah. Now, how many would have gotten it even if I hadn't said, look at the hair shaft? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It, it's just that the lighting is not perfect for this. And um, so anyway, I'm, I'm not going to spend any time on this one. Um, what's the favorite way to treat it? Cetaphil? Yeah, I like you. Um, I use mayonnaise. Uh, mayonnaise is a little easier to get out than Cetaphil, and uh, the thing about it is, is that what it does is it kills all the live lice, and you leave it on there, you know, and the kids cry and carry on and tell you what a bad parent you are. But uh, you leave that mayonnaise on there, it'll kill the lice, and then you go ahead and get the knit comb out, and you go ahead and do that, and it's non-toxic. It's a great trick. Uh, I, you can use other things, including Vaseline, including Cetaphil, and other things like that. But, um, but mayonnaise is so much easier to get out than Cetaphil. Any other great tricks with head lice that anybody wants to point out? How long do you leave the mayonnaise on? For four hours. It's long enough to kill the lice. Just one time. Just one time. Comb it out. Now, if you find more lice, then you didn't do a good job on the mayonnaise, you do it again. Or you can do other things. There are lots of pediculicides out there, you know, uh, RID and things like that. But, but I really prefer a non-toxic thing. And there's a new one out that's an organophosphate, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's one of the malathion products. And you can use that, but why would you want to use that on a little kid, you know, where you're putting it on a, a fairly significant body surface area, and they have increased transdermal uh, absorption of the medication if you didn't have to. So I, I, my first line of treatment is mayonnaise. Not that I ever see it anymore because I do uh, most surgery for the most part. But All right, anacardiasia. I love anacardiasia. I have something like 19 mango trees in my yard, and I happen to be allergic to anacardiasia. I can't eat a one of them. Uh, but uh, the, the main four are uh, mangoes, of course, and cashews. Cashews, the first time I discovered that I was allergic to the food end of things is I had a blister about that high off of my hand from holding high-end cashews and popping them into my mouth, uh, just in my left hand. It took me about a day to figure it out, um, which I don't know what that says about me. but. Um, Anyway, cashews, pistachios are a very low-grade uh, uh, product as far as uh, transmitting the, the ruchiol oils. And marula, does anybody know what marula is? What is it? It's a fruit, and it's in, in southern Africa. And uh, if you have ever had amarula cream, that's from the marula fruit. Uh, it it kind of tastes like Bailey's, you know. But um, anyway, all right, walk out of the room if you didn't get this. Just get up right now, walk out. What is the Breslow's uh, depth on this one? Take a guess. 0.8? Anybody else? Three millimeters? No, it's not even close to three millimeters. This is, this is probably 0.5 to 0.8. 
Um, you look at it, it's got that nodular component to it, and I don't need to point that out. Uh, the nodular component is raised up, but it's not so raised up because a three millimeter is a whopper of a melanoma. It is something that is sticking up half the width of a pencil eraser. And so uh, this is not even remotely that far along. You know, it's probably less than a centimeter. I mean, a millimeter. It's certainly less than a centimeter. Uh, less than a millimeter, but probably in that 0.5 to 0.6 range right there. Um, and uh, so what we do is we treat those by cutting them out. And by the way, Emily Neal has cut out over 400, probably closer to 500 melanomas in the course of her career. I'm proud of her. She's worked very hard. My other PAs are right on her heels. Uh, they, we uh, do not consider that to be something that is something that needs to be done by me. Um, if it's something that's going to be done with sentinel nodes, then we send them off to someone who can do the whole definitive procedure. The thing that I would like to point out is if it's on an extremity, make your excisional diagno uh, uh, biopsy or your huge punch biopsy in such a, closed in such a way so that it is parallel to the lymphatics. It'll make the sentinel node folks so much happier if you do it that way. How many people got this one? Yeah, you guys are so smart, you really are. Uh, PUP is something that it stands for pruritic urticarial papules and plaques of pregnancy. Usually starts out as something that the patient reports is like a bug bite, but you know it's not a bug bite because it's in their stria. They're usually in the, uh, they're usually primips, and it's usually in the final trimester. And so uh, what we find is we find that it'll run right along those stria, it'll drive them and you batty. And the most important thing to say about this is that you always must play Mother May I, Mother May I, all along the way uh, with the obstetrician. Perioral derm, everybody get it? Yeah, we see that all the time. Syringomas, another thing, that's a sweat duct tumor, it's benign, and it is uh, fairly easily diagnosed. You can treat them any one of a number of different ways, but the most important thing is to make the diagnosis. Oral hairy leukoplakia has that whitish plaque, and the most important thing to look for are those vertical striations or rugations that you see there. Uh, those, those are a dead giveaway for oral hairy leukoplakia, and we see that in all forms of immunocompromise. It's caused by the Epstein-Barr virus, and the Epstein-Barr virus, of course, is what gives us mononucleosis back in the day, you know, when we were kissing on a boyfriend and girlfriend. Uh, but, but the main thing that we know about Epstein-Barr virus is that it'll come back to haunt you if you're immune compromised. So people who are either chronically ill or undergoing chemotherapy or have HIV. And last but not least, PCT is the diagnosis, cutanea tarda. It's caused by a deficiency in uroperfrenogen decarboxylase. Uh, we see it a lot in people who are chronic alcoholics, people who have uh, familiar hemochromatosis, and in people who, are, uh, who have hepatitis C. Um, the differential diagnosis would include pseudoporphyria, which is, um, you know, most of the time caused by, uh, by non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So I think that is it. So thank you very much for your attention. And I, I've got to tell you, I've, I've uh, supervised PAs since my days in the Air Force in 1990. 
Actually, even earlier than that, back in 86. Uh, and so in 86, I had my first PA. I had no idea what a PA was. And, and the guy happened to be one of the smartest people I ever met in my life. And so I want you to know that there are a whole group of us doctors that are out there promoting you. And all you need to do is just go out there and tear it up. So thank you again.